death of George Floyd in Minneapolis, Minnesota, in the middle of a pandemic, has really opened up racial divides in the United States and also the cultural and socioeconomic divides as well. While I lived in the Twin Cities back in the early 2000s, I became acquainted with Charles Hallman, who was a, a fixture at women's sports events and men's sports events, and in particular in developing relationships with our black athletes on the Minnesota teams. I appreciated his writing. He wasn't afraid to call people out. He wasn't afraid to say we can do this better. And so I reached out to him this week to try to get his take on the riots that happened in Minnesota, whether he knew George Floyd and what it means for to be a black man living in the Twin Cities trying to report on sports at this day and age. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Karen Weaver. The, the epicenter of this racial justice movement has been in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And the death of George Floyd has brought a lot of um, questions from the background into the foreground. Today, I wanted to bring somebody who I, whose opinion I trust and whose viewpoint I think is valuable and unique to our podcast. Journalist Charles Hallman has covered sports for over four decades for radio and print in the Twin Cities. Women's sports and diversity in sport issues are his primary coverage areas. He has written for the Minnesota Spokesman's Recorder, the oldest black newspaper in Minnesota for 30 years where he writes two weekly columns. He has been recognized locally, regionally, and nationally for his work and has won multiple awards over the years. He is also the longest tenured beat writer for the University of Minnesota women's sports teams, 33 years, that's remarkable, and the Minnesota Lynx of the WNBA for the team's 21-year history. And true fact, Charles and I knew each other from my days at the University of Minnesota. So Charles, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Karen. Appreciate appreciate the opportunity. This Zoom stuff is getting. I'm trying to get used to it. I made a joke that the last only thing I knew about Zoom was a title for Commodore's song back in the set. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember that song, so that should tell us both how old we are, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's great to see you, and and of course, I want to get your initial thoughts on on everything that happened in Minneapolis. I assume a lot of that was on Lake Street. I heard initially it was at 38th in Chicago, not far from where I lived for a period of time. Tell us from your perspective how things are. Yeah, it spread from 38th. In fact, 38th in Chicago is, is basically has been closed in terms of the memorial. They took over that whole, that whole section. Uh, then it went to East Lake Street. So it went from uh, basically where Hiawatha is going east towards St. Paul. That's where the, most of the protests and the destruction happened uh and uh but that only took that took place maybe three days so to speak but the the protest has been pretty much downtown at the at the, at the government center some locations around the city uh they had the big march they shut down the free, free 35w by the university where that if you heard about the truck that almost ran over that that, that was a, a St. Paul has some places too. They have protests going to the governor's. Uh, so it hasn't, there's been some relief, so to speak, 
Well, it's not been a day that something hasn't going on here here locally. Uh, and the thing about it, and I've been I've been all the whole world got to see things that we've been seeing here in Minneapolis for a long time. Uh, and secondly, will this really push for real change? And I think that's where people are really these protests are really amazing to me is that you have so many young people who are now saying enough is enough. They're being peaceful about it, but they really think this is going to move this forward. Uh, and since we've all been cooped up for the last three months, I think all that came to a head. And the concern is, you know, you're out there with no social distancing, those type of things. But just the fact that I think the conversation people really think it's gonna move forward. Really, People are really gonna be serious about this. I talk to people at the U, they really putting in some things in place and they really listen to people. And I think that's been the biggest thing. People have been saying it forever, but I think people really heard it. And it, unfortunately, George Floyd, you know, people saw that. And I think that brought everything to home. Had you crossed paths with George Floyd at all in your career? Be honest, I never met him before. Okay, okay. Because he's a former athlete, so I just didn't know if he, he would perhaps. Yeah, he had. I don't know how long he'd been in Minnesota. So I think ours, I think his athletics was back in, in, in Texas. Okay. So I don't know if he did anything here. I, I met one person that knew him, and, you know, they said, you know, they said for all general purposes, he was a nice guy. Yeah, yeah. And didn't deserve to, to leave the way he left. Absolutely. You know, Charles, you've been calling out people for a long time about the lack of uh, a black presence on athletic rosters at the University of Minnesota, the lack of a black uh, administrative team at the University of Minnesota. And, and that's one of the reasons why I felt that you had such a valuable voice is that you were calling out on behalf of making the institution a better, more diverse institution and also helping our teams, you know, understand why diversity matters on a team. Where did that come from in your, in your journalism? What made you start to actually write columns about that? You know, that's a good question. I don't know, I was in, I'm influenced or was influenced or still influenced by Richard Lapchuk and his report cards. Uh, just the fact that our business, the journalism business is one of the few last basket of lack of diversity. Uh, and you know, it's, a, it's sad that you have to, you, you go to cover an event or you work on an event and you're the only one or one of few. Right. And I think that we all have our own perspectives and our own, we bring something to the, I hate to use the word, we bring something to the table. You know, we have experiences that we can share that you might not know anything about, or you might not understand why that athlete acts the way they act, or why they don't smile like you want them to smile, or why they seem to be so suspicious to you. And I think uh, when I was in college, you know, I was at a predominantly white institution. And so therefore, there was only, there was only like 50 of us in our journalism program. And so therefore, of all my years of going to journalism school, I never took a class when another person looked like me. Wow. And so therefore I had professors that didn't look like me. I had students that didn't look like me and I'm trying to learn a craft that don't want me in it, you know, or, or will be reluctant to get me in it. So, I mean, all that came in the health. So it was natural for me to speak on that. 
and luckily that people heard me and because I think that's a, 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 a that's an area that's not talked about enough and not talked about enough by the major newspapers or people who really make it they want to say you know they give it a little short spliff about it rather than saying you know this is something that's important and I've heard that and not in a tokenism kind of way okay I don't want you to put a black person on your board or on your team on this just so you could have check out the box because that's not fair at all Okay, that's no, it's not, not even fair to have a white person on an all black team and say that's gonna check out the box. I think what you have to do is if they are the best person, then good. And that's always been my that's always been my argument, Karen, is that if you interview a black for a position and they didn't fit your criteria because they didn't fit it, I'm fine with that. Sure. What I'm not fine with if you don't give them that opportunity to even interview, yeah, yeah. You know, or give them a chance to even present themselves, or you already have your mind made up. Mm -hmm. You know, that's my argument about the Rooney Rule in the NFL. I think that you know that's just a sham right now. It's always been one because you already have mind made up, and so that tokenism is something that's more insulting than not even getting a, an opportunity to interview. So, looking at higher education in the Twin Cities, I mean, there's a, there's of course the University of Minnesota, but there's a lot of small colleges too. I mean, just a bunch of small colleges within an hour, hour and a half drive. What's your sense of their commitment to diversity, first in higher education, and then let's talk about sports? I think it's the same at all levels. Um, MEIC is still, is still lacking in diversity. It's interesting that, uh, and, and it's, it's amazing that in 2019, Augsburg Field, a primary black, female basketball team the first time in history wow and we covered them through the and they finished second two times two times in a row unfortunately they couldn't be st tom then they beat bethel but the, the mic commissioner came to me and said because of my writing about that he forced that's forcing the league now to look seriously about becoming more diverse all the way through and you know some that's my job karen my, my job is try to get people to see that and move it forward. Not to take credit for it, just to move it forward. But the MIC is, you know, there's still that, there's still that, that problem of making sure that diversity is really means something. Not just say it because it sounds good or a catchy term, but really you want people have voices. The, the different voices, that makes a difference. Even when I write a story, Karen, I want different voices. They don't have to always be all black. But I want different voices because then you can learn something. I can learn something from you, Karen, that I might not learn from someone else. Or you can learn something from me that you might not learn from someone else. But if you don't have, or neither of us are there, then you hear the same old voices and they're just like echoes and not going to change. Let me ask you something. And this is, again, my perception of, of being in Minnesota just for four years. But, you know, I felt like I, at times I felt like I understood it. And other times I really continuously felt like an outsider because I wasn't a native Minnesotan. Do African-Americans, or maybe just yourself in particular, do you feel like you're an insider or do you still feel like you're fighting as an outsider? Well, I am an outsider. I wasn't born here. Right. <laughs> I, right. I was born in Detroit. You know, you've been I there can't... for how many years? <laughs> I've been there for, been there long enough I've been in Detroit, to be honest. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I am an outsider and, and, and that gives me a unique viewpoint. Yeah. Uh, because, Minnesota has that 
that that that lull that lullness, if I can say, of things doing well. You know, mm -hmm. people are people are accepting, and it, and the, but that underlining message is that we don't want you here, or we only want certain people here. But it's not obvious because this is Minnesota. You know, this is you know Minnesota is so liberal, those type of things. And I heard somebody said. Somebody told me last week is that liberal racism is almost worse than the other kind of racism because you make people feel comfortable. And therefore, when somebody like me or someone from the outside see things and see it for what it is, it, 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 it exposes, it takes, the, takes a little layer off of it. And so what happened with Mr. Floyd took a, a big layer of it. And not a whole, I had people call me and tweet me and say, they didn't know that, we thought Minnesota was so liberal and so this. No, it's not, okay? It's like any other place in this country, it has, it has problems. Right. And so therefore, when you're not accepting of it, 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 it makes a difference. But I think I can see it clear that somebody, I know people that were born here in Minnesota and they get really, they get surprised because they, they were born here. And so when you come up, you bring a perspective. You bring a broader perspective from where you're from. I brought a perspective from my my from where I'm from. I can see things a little different, not objectively, so to speak, but more differently. So therefore, I can see. You know, this is going on. They said, "Wow, we didn't know that was going on." Well, you've been living there all your life. You know, you should know that. But but if you you know, they separate. They do that. They like to separate the chaff from the wheat. They separate the so-called good ones and make and push them and leave everybody else behind. And so that's a that's 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 something that I saw right away, and uh, almost immediately when I when I came here in 1981, I saw that almost immediately because I was brought here to to work as an editor at a at a, a now defunct Control Data, and the first thing the, my boss told me to do, they didn't tell me where the black community was living at. They had me wanting to live out in, in the suburbs. Hmm. Because in his mind, I wasn't gonna be here for a couple of years anyway. I wasn't, you know, I was gonna get tired and leave, which I almost did because it was too cold here. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I mean, but until I reached out and found there was black churches, found there was a black community, you know, I wasn't encouraged to live out, to move into the city. They wanted me to stay out in, in, in out in the suburbs. So I noticed that right away that that was uh, a yeah. that was that subtleness of uh, you know well. You're not from here, so we don't want you to be a part of that, that yeah. group. Got it. So let's take that into recruited student athletes from not, not from Minnesota, recruited from Florida or Texas or Ohio or other places. How do they then function in this world that they're dropped into? I think, first of all, it becomes a Shangri-La for them. Uh, if you grew up in an environment that's been rough, tough, whatever, and now you come here and you see all the, the, the beautiful trees and the lakes and all these kind of things, that lull you into, wow, this is nothing I've never been a part of. And so therefore, again, you come in here for one or, one or two reasons. You come here to get a degree, hopefully. You also come here to play sports. And now you are away from all the stuff that you dealt with growing up. In an environment that maybe wasn't the most conducive, whatever. But then when you get here, you either get awakened or not awakened. What I mean by that is you find you realize that you are isolated. First of all, after you isolated because they put you on a, on, a, on a separate track. And then you find out that you're not, only people you really associate with is your athletic brothers and sisters. You don't get a chance to interact with the so-called regular students. 
And so therefore, if something happens on campus, you are looked at as the spokesman, the black, black person, the black spokesperson to speak on why that happened, okay? Right. And why would you be shorter with that? But because you are the only one there or you one among the few. And so therefore you are asked to speak for the masses, so to speak, and to justify what happened or what didn't happen. And so therefore you, if you rebel against that, so there's been some that did, they got, they felt the wrath of that, not so much from their teammates, but from the, the school itself. So mm -hmm. yeah, I think it's, and then you leave it. I mean, after three or four years, you got a degree, you go, I mean, I know some who stayed here and, and made a life out of some. A lot of them just, hey, they, going, they go back home or they found other places to go, whether playing sports professionally or moving into their professional lives as a, as a job. And so Minnesota's always been that, that how, what do you say, a way station or a, a stop off, not a temporary, you know, not a temporary place. Again, I didn't know I was going to be here as long as I've been here. Yeah. Uh, but I, I did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So one of the things that's unique about the Twin Cities is has been the uh, growing population of Somalians. When I had first moved there, there was a growing population of Hmong as well. Mm -hmm. um, what impact do you think that has had on um, the dynamics? It has been difficult impact. And why I say that is, uh, there's a, there's, it's unbeknown, it's not well publicized. It's a very strict, it's a very strain between the Somalian and the black communities. Uh, because Somalians look at the black communities here as being just like white people. Okay. And then now the blacks, Black community look at the Somalians as being treated special because they are foreigners, so to speak. And so it's been that tension. And so it's more pronounced at the high school level, more so in college. Uh, there's been some schools that's becoming more Somalian populated, and that's causing tension among the so-called American-born Blacks. Uh, but then again, it brings another layer of, how should I say it? Now you make you put the Somalians ahead of the blacks, you know, in that pecking order. Yeah. Okay, because they're not from here. Okay, so they're more special than you are. So now you promote their businesses, you promote their their economic uh, objectives, and then you push blacks further back. So that creates another divide and conquer mentality. That's right. that's bad. Uh, I know a bunch of Somalians, and, uh, and you know, you get to know them, they fine. But you know, we as black people can be more judgmental sometimes than anybody. Uh, and so it's been a real big strain uh, here in, in Minneapolis. St. Cloud's had, a, had, a, had an issue there because the, uh, they have a large population there and because of meat packing and all those industries up there. So they, they're being hired. And so it's been a strain, but it's, I see it a little bit. I see it better because you have Somalians now on the city council here. You have, you have uh, Representative Omar. Uh, who lost, unfortunately, lost their father to right. COVID. Uh, so you're seeing them progressing into the political realm, but it's almost like, again, they're not being fully accepted by the, the so-called American-born Black community. Right. right. So in your, in your time, I, I'm guessing you have crossed paths with Kevin Warren when he worked with the Vikings. Yes. Um, well, now, as you well know, he's the Big Ten commissioner. And he has launched an anti-hate and anti-racism initiative. Um, what are your thoughts on that? 
it was funny about that. He, t he, he was doing his tour of all the Big Ten campuses. In fact, he came here in February. And so I asked him point blank. I say, first of all, you're, only, you're the first black commissioner of the Big Ten, blah, blah, boo, boo. I asked him, what are you going to do to promote diversity and, in, and inclusion as, as, a, you know, as, a, as a black individual? And he talked about that, not in, in name form. He talked about that was be one of his initiatives to make sure that that's always the inclusion, diversity, or dealing with people generally would be something of a focus. So that doesn't surprise me. I, I met him several years earlier uh, at a function. He seemed to be very genuine in his thoughts. He's always been generous with me when talking with him. The NFL is such a tough group to deal with. But he's always been, he's helped me a couple of times when I had some issues I need to deal with the Vikings. He stepped up. Uh, people who know him tell me the very honorable man from the times I talked when he was very honorable and he's genuine with it. So having this come out doesn't surprise me. The issue would be, Karen, whether he can get other people to buy into that. Yeah. Because you can start that initiative, but if you don't get 100% buy-in, then it becomes, then it becomes auto talk or it'll fall down the wayside unless you really get you know really get people to push it besides him he's only one man so he's in his office in chicago so can he get minnesota can he get purdue can he get iowa can you know see so can he get them to buy into what his vision is once that happens then i think it'll work but i i, I applaud it but again there's a lot of things happening karen i mean i you know i had a man tell me the last time he saw something of this magnitude was the, the, the after King got Dr. King got assassinated, but it only lasted a couple of days. But to go, I mean, to see the world protesting yeah. on an everyday basis—it's not like once in a while they protest every day. And faces of different races yeah. are protesting. This might make a this in addition to the virus, it might make the push, the tipping point to make this into a stop talking about this and really moving this to action. And that's, that's something, if that happens, I never thought I'd see a black president in my lifetime, but if I see serious change in my lifetime, I can go to heaven and be happy. I can write there for eternity. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe all the writing you did made a difference, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, let, let's build on that idea of the movement and this racial justice movement and a number of black athletes just in the last week, week and a half, have stepped up and, and called out their institutions or even their head coaches for not being responsive and sensitive to the moment. What do you think about this, this, this stepping up of black athletes in particular, but in athletes in general? I am basically, I'm really surprised. Uh, I think they feel comfortable that they have power now that they didn't have before. I've always wished they would speak out more. When, you have a, when you're an athlete, you are considered a leader. And why can't you speak out? But I think it was fear of retribution. I think it was fear of losing their scholarship. It was fear of other things. And I think you saw it happening in the mid to, after 2010, you saw several athletes starting to speak out. Uh, because when things happen, it could be you. You know, I mean, you know, the, 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 the uh, Ryan Sanders said, that could have been one of his teammates instead of George Floyd, you know? I mean, so therefore, those kind of things hit home because you can you can really empathize with it. I have two sons. I have a 
two adult sons. That could be one of my sons. Yeah. So therefore, it's a painful experience, and you you feel that, and sometimes you just can't. You can keep it in, then you can ulcer, you get ulcer, all the other stuff. So I think now students are feeling more comfortable that they can speak out, like the regular black students can do. They don't feel that they will be ostracized. And because this movement has been has spread like wildfire, is that they feel they have support. And, and, and so far, the school officials has not, has not publicly not backed them. Now, again, we don't know what this leads three months from now. We don't know where this goes six months from now. Because again, this thing changes every day. I mean, this virus is not going away. Uh, there's still some issues with health and safety. Will, will this continue to be a movement or a moment? That's the issue right now. If it becomes a movement, we're going to see change. When it becomes a moment, that means six months from now, we go back to business as usual. Yeah. And, and, and so therefore, students will go back into their shadows and they'll be scared to speak out. I think that, I personally, Karen, I think they have now feel they can speak out and they can speak out and they got support, not just from their own teammates, but from the world of speaking out that something did happen to them, uh, something, uh, a Kaepernick happened to them, that uh, they, they'll have more support this time as opposed to stepping out, stepping out on principle, stepping out on protest, and then he's just out there like on an island by themselves. And, and given more latitude to express that support, for example, it doesn't seem like there'll be as much angst around uh, somebody taking a knee during the national anthem anymore as there was just a couple of years ago. Yeah, it's funny about that. You know, it's funny that that's what Colin Kaepernick was doing. He was bringing attention to this whole issue by taking the knee. And he got ostracized for that. And now four years or five years later, people apologizing, or were the commissioners apologizing to him? Okay, it was never about the American flag. It was never about the national anthem. It was about police brutality. Right. It was about it was about the injustices that happens to black people in this country. That's what he was talking about. He did it in a silent way, and therefore you didn't hear him. Now you hear him now. And it's almost uh, you know, like James Baldwin said, you know, you, you you only hear us when we yell and scream. You don't hear us when we talk quietly. That was a quiet protest. You could have you could have initiated change four years ago. If you'd have followed up with what he was doing and kept up with that, um, you know, WNBA players were doing the same thing, wearing T-shirts. Okay, they got fined originally, and they finally rescinded the fine. But I mean, there's always been those kind of movements, but I think they was always short-lived. You know, I mean, this is not the first. You know, George Floyd's not the first person to die at the hands of the police. Okay, there's been others died before them, but they never sustained a protest as listed. And like his family member said, if this pushes forward, his, his death will not be in vain. I mean, his name would be just as synonymous as Dr. King, as uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Gandhi, or anybody that started a movement, or a Rosa Parks. His name would be like that if everything moved forward. And it's sad that that happened, but again, change sometimes only happens when you really push to change. Yeah. You know, you really push to, to be uncomfortable enough to say, yeah, you know what, we need to change this. It's not happening in the White House right now, but <laughs> but but they changed that. So therefore, if that happens and it happens because of what he went through and on the May 25th, then you know what? His name, his legacy will be that. And it, it won't be it won't be the fact that he might have pushed the wrong bill or even that, you know, or that he has photo resistance or that. It'll be that what his 
The world saw his life being taken away in eight minutes and so many seconds. That started a movement, like Rosa Parks sitting on the bus. That started a movement. You know, I mean, it's always been movements started from just a one single act, okay? And so therefore, some was nonviolent, some took people's lives, but, it's, but that makes it a movement as opposed to a moment that it just protests for a few days and they go away. I mean, in three weeks now, Karen, yeah. almost, almost a month now, protests still going on. And, and, and that's unheard of in America. In Minnesota, but just around around the world. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this as a final question. You know, you're going to be hopefully interviewing athletes as they come back, talking about the upcoming football season or other sports. What kinds of things are you going to be listening for as they talk about their experiences going forward? I'm going to listen to, do they feel comfortable? Do they feel that can be, they can compete and be healthy doing that? I think there's still that underlying fear factor of coming back and you don't know what's going to happen. Uh, it's not going to be like it was. I, I hate to hear the word new normal. It's not going to be normal anymore. The sports is going to be totally different. Either it's going to be with fans or less number of fans, or it's not going to be allowed fans, or it's going to be wholly, totally different. And so therefore, uh, I'm, I've been asking a couple of athletes. I did an interview with a young lady who from, from the Bahamas, actually, and she was able to get back home before they put the travel ban on. Uh, and so she missed her spring sport, obviously. And I asked her, I said, how do you feel coming back? She said, that's the, that's the fear right now. Can I come back and be healthy? It's not about sports anymore. And sports shouldn't be called a distraction. But that would be what I would listen to. Are they really comfortable? It's almost like coming back from an injury. You know, do you can you know once you put your foot down or you fall down, you can get back up and you all right. Then you can keep going. But that uncertainty is, can my body withstand after I had an injury? Or the same thing now. This injury was it's a national injury. Is the virus? So now can we stand that moving forward and be able to do that without fear of getting 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 contracted or getting sick? That's, the, that's going to be a question that I would ask and I would keep an eye on personally uh, as we go on. But again, I mean, everything's so, so, so uncertainly, Karen. I, I mean, they still haven't decided we're going to play football yet. Right. You know, so, I mean, we, you know, and, and right now that's, that's, you know, I mean, go day by day. I mean, that's, uh, I was talking to a colleague before, before we got on the podcast. This is the first summer I have not covered sports. <laughs> You know, I mean, in a, in a true way, I'm at a baseball game on the bat. I mean, I mean, I had plans this summer. <laughs> I had plans to go and visit, the, you know, go on a Twins road trip. I had plans to go elsewhere. I'm not going anywhere. Right. I can't go to St. Paul these days. But, I, you know, it's just, it's just a different – I can't plan. We can't plan like we used to. It's just that that's not in the cards at this point. And looking forward to uh, the fall – we don't even know how that's going to be. My one of my oldest, my oldest son is a high school basketball, high school football coach, and he's not sure they're going to have fall sports because dad he told me how can I have social distancing with a hundred kids? How can I, you know? And then how can I ask them to come to practice when they can't come in the school building because schools haven't been ruled out? So it's a lot of uncertainties out there, and they, and we aren't getting those answers or the answers are coming piecemeal. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be an interesting time. I, it's challenging, and I will be writing about it as much as I can. 
but it's going to be it won't be so much about games and wins and losses but how people react to this new way of sports that will never be the same again well i'm going to encourage encourage listeners to uh, follow you on twitter to find the uh, spokesman recorder online on the website read your by your twice weekly columns they are thought-provoking and I, I just have a sense you're going to be really tapped into this. So, Charles Hallman, thank you so much for spending some time with me today. I really appreciate it. Well, Karen, thank you for taking a little bit of my time. <laughs> you know, sometimes you get, you get tired of watching the reports on TV or listening to the radio or do what I do, which is writing all the time. I enjoy this. This is, this is fun. I hope we can do this again. This is, this is fun. And sure. I enjoyed this yeah, very much. Absolutely. Thank you.